Today on the show, we will get a little deeper into the question that I am constantly asking, who are you? I'm going to give you a method to help you get closer to answering this question and experiencing the true self. Then I will share an interesting interview I had with Peter Walters, who is a bhakti flow yoga teacher and also shares music through the practice of kirtan. Visit thestoryofmepodcast.com to submit questions for the show and also follow the link to the Facebook group so you can continue the conversation after the podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the podcast and share it with a friend as this helps us get the word out. Thank you. Now let's get to it. Beautiful am I Bountiful am I Blissful am I Why? Welcome to the story of me with Amarjit Singh. This is where I share stories from my unconventional life and relate the psychological insights that I learned from these experiences. Each story will entertain you as well as increase your awareness of your own self-limiting patterns. Then, through the principles of yoga psychology, you will learn how to overcome the resistance that is holding you back from living a more fulfilling life. Join me every Tuesday for a new episode where I share my experiences in psychological understanding, interview guests, and answer listener questions. Now let's get started with the podcast that awakens your inner power through awareness and understanding. Thank you for joining me today. My name is Amarjit Singh and I am your host. Today I will be sharing an interview I had with Peter Walters, who's a bhakti flow yoga teacher and also shares music through the practice of kirtan. It was an interesting conversation. I met Peter about five years ago in India, and uh, we'll get to that conversation. But first, I would like to get into a little deeper conversation about this question that I'm constantly asking, who are you? So I found my way to this question in every episode so far, asking you, who are you? Who are you? It's time for me to teach you how to start to experience this question, because it is the question for yoga. And I present this question, as you can tell if you've listened to a few of my episodes, all the time. When I'm giving a workshop, maybe this is where I begin, is by asking, who are you? And I can tell that many of the students look at me and they think, this is very beginning stuff. Why are you asking this question? We know we're not the mind and the body, that we are the soul. And even you guys listening may be thinking the same thing. This is beginning yoga. I want something more advanced. I want to get deeper because I already know this. But even as... The students say this, they don't really understand, and you may not as well. What happens is that people tend to understand something intellectually, and they believe that they understand it. And this is the problem with this basic principle question, which is the foundation of this spiritual quest is to answer this question of who am I? 
when you say, I know this, I know I'm not my mind and not my body, and the students will say this to me, that I am the soul. So I'll give the students a challenging posture, or I'll have them sit in meditation for 30 minutes. After the posture or after the meditation, when I ask them why they couldn't be still or why they couldn't hold that posture or sit in that meditation without moving, they always tell me, well, my back hurt or my legs were hurting or it was uncomfortable or it was too difficult. When you see this behavior, you start to understand that they don't really know that they're not their mind and their body because they're identifying with the body. They're identifying with what the mind is telling them. In fact, I can give a difficult posture, and the time on the posture is two minutes. And after a minute and a half, you can start to see the people struggling, and you can see the, the, the body shaking, the muscles ready to give out, the expressions on the face. If I then say, okay, there's 20 more seconds, hold it for 20 seconds, all of a sudden you see the expression on their face change, you see their body start to relax more, and then they're able to hold it. When If I wouldn't have said, you have 20 more seconds, they wouldn't have made it. That 20 seconds, they would have dropped the posture. And so why is that? Why, when I tell them they have 20 seconds, it becomes easy. But if I don't say that, they were about to drop the posture. And this is because the mind does not like uncertainty. And they are reacting to their mind. They're feeling the discomfort in the body, but then the mind is telling them they can't do it and can't do it. And when I say 20 seconds left, the mind says, well, I can do 20 seconds. But if I don't say that, in five seconds, they would have dropped the posture. So before we get into this question of who am I, we have to understand what it means to understand. And if anyone has taken a Vipassana course, they've heard this, where they talk about three ways of knowing. There's how to know something through what someone tells you or, or, or teaches you or that you read. And then there's the way to know something through inference, through logic, through reasoning. And then there's the final way to experience. And the first two are just to get you to the third, because until you're at the third, you really don't know. Right? And they, in, in the Vipassana courses, they give this example of this. So imagine you go to a restaurant and you sit down and, and people tell you that, oh, this food is really good. Uh, it, it's very good. Well, this is the first way of knowing. Someone had told you something or you read something about it. And then the second way is you look at the people in the restaurant and they seem to be enjoying their food. They have a nice expression on their face. They're eating all their food. And this is the capacity to use your logic and reasoning saying, well, look, at they're enjoying their food. It must be good. And then the third way, and the only true way to know something is now you get your food and you eat it, and you experience how good it is. And so this is the three ways of knowing, and the first two are just preparation for the third. And so until you learn to experience something, you really don't know it. 
You know it intellectually or logically or reasonably, but through the mind you know it. But this is not knowing. In anything, knowing is through experience. And so for me, I had this experience that showed me how to experience who I am a little deeper than this intellectual knowing of I know I'm not my mind, I know I'm not the body, but I know that I'm this consciousness behind it. But how do you experience this consciousness and separate it from the mind and the body? And I had this experience which allowed me to see this. And this experience happened during a white tantra workshop. In Kundalini Yoga, they practice white tantra. Now, there are three different types of tantra. There's white, red, and black. Red is the most well-known type of tantra, and this is, in all types of tantra, what they're doing is they're using the polarities of the masculine and feminine body, right? And, And they're using these polarities to raise your consciousness. And tantra in itself is different than other forms of yoga in the fact that the main principle of tantra is to use the body to raise your consciousness, to use your body as a ladder to raise the consciousness, where many other forms of yoga are trying to ignore the body, to go past the body. Tantra uses or incorporates the body to raise your consciousness. Red Tantra uses the sexual polarities to raise the consciousness, to get you to this point where you're truly present through the sexual energy. Black Tantra is to manipulate these polarities to have some other effect. And the white tantra is to use these polarities to raise your concentration through meditation. I was in this white tantra workshop in France. There they do it for three days in the big kundalini yoga festival. This is in the the beginning stages of when I first really was getting into uh, kundalini yoga. And You do these meditations where you sit for 62 minutes and you're facing your partner and everyone is in a line and you're either looking into the eyes of the partner or you're in a position where maybe your hands are up or to the sides or even holding their hands or or something like this. You have to try to be as still as you can for the 62-minute meditation. Sometimes there's a mantra, sometimes it's in silence. After, I don't know, it depends on the person, 20 minutes or 30 minutes, you start to experience discomfort. And so each of these postures are done in a particular way to focus the energy to somewhere in the body specifically, because then it works on whatever emotion is held there. And so we're doing a posture, and it was focusing right at about the heart level, and I can feel in my back this burning sensation. As I'm doing this, I start to try to approach how to maintain this posture without dropping it. You know, maybe this is 30 minutes into it. Who knows? Because you don't know what time it is. The first way I try to do this is saying, okay, I'm strong, and think, I am stronger than this pain. It will not move me. And you start to contract your muscles. I don't care how strong you are, but how long can you do this for? 
right? You can do this for maybe the 60-minute meditation. But if we look at this way of dealing with this difficult posture, and we look at it in relationship to how are you dealing with your life, and many people go through life with force. Everything is a battle for them. And even some of these people are economically rewarded for this. They have success because they just keep fighting and fighting and everything is a battle. And this is their approach to life. But how peaceful are these people? And how much tension is in the body? And so this is what I started to notice when I was holding the posture like this, that everything in my body was tight. How is my mind? My mind is so tense. Where's the peace? How am I going to recognize the truth within with all this tension? Because this tension creates a vibration, and this vibration disrupts the silence. It disrupts the peace within the body because it's, it's loud and it's, it's aggressive. Then I, I changed this idea to this idea that, okay, I'm going to sit in this posture, and I'm not going to think about the pain I'm going to imagine myself somewhere else. And this is what many people, most people, do in their life. They distract themselves. They engage in behavior like drugs or alcohol, or they watch too much television or movies, or they eat when they're not feeling good. All these activities to distract themselves. And if you distract yourself, well, it's a little more peaceful than by force. But it creates this duality because you are not present. Part of you is where you're sitting. Your mind is somewhere else. And so how can you realize yourself this way? And how can you get ahead in life through using distraction? Then there's the third method. And this is when I started to learn how to truly experience the self and not the the self that's the mind and not the self that's the body, but the true self that's the consciousness behind it. And so when you're sitting there and you're feeling like moving because the pain in the legs or the pain in the back or the shoulders is so great, You have to understand, well, who is feeling this pain? Who is really experiencing it? Now, if you're not your mind and your body, who's experiencing the pain? Because the consciousness or the soul cannot experience pain. And so it's just the mind and the body that's experiencing it. And this is the reaction that people have in life, is they experience difficulties in life, and the mind reacts to it, and the body reacts to it, and causes habit patterns that take away your capacity to be authentic and to be present and to fulfill your potential. But now, let's imagine that you're sitting there, and you're experiencing this pain in the legs from sitting in this meditation pose. And it's very painful. Well, we have to really understand what this pain is. The mind 
experiences something psychologically, and then the result of this resides in the body. We talked about this in the episode of anger, how the psychology of anger, the manifestation of this vibration happens within the chest area. And so each emotion is held somewhere else in the body, which is a manifestation of your psychology. Look at the pain as your reaction to this emotion that's held in the body. Because some people will feel pain in the leg when they're meditating, some will feel it in the shoulder, the back, depending on your psychology. Now, one thing that we need to really separate is there's two kinds of pain. There's pain that's a warning of injury, and this is very different than what we're talking about now. And so you have to understand your body enough to recognize, is is this pain that's warning me that there's going to be injury to my body? The other pain where it's a discomfort, what we're talking about is a judgment, is your mind is judging this pain. It's saying, I don't want this, in the same way that your mind will start to judge when it feels good, I want this, right? Because there's people who enjoy pain and and they keep it in their life, right? They keep drama in their life because they enjoy at some level this pain because they feel they deserve it, or they're trying to compensate for some experience they had when they were younger. And so we start to learn through this that pain is a judgment except for the pain that's a warning of injury, and this is different, but general pain of discomfort is a judgment. And so when you feel this pain in the leg and you're meditating, your mind is reacting to it. Your mind is saying, change the posture so the pain goes away. And what I experience is this way of trying to observe the pain, And this is a foundation of Buddhism, right? This equanimity is to be equanimous with the pain, to be equanimous with the sensation, because it's really just a sensation, and our judgment is making it painful. And so when we experience this pain in the leg, and the mind says, change the posture, change the posture, well, Who's in control of the mind? Your impulses or the true self, the consciousness? And so this is what I started to experience is I said, I'm not going to listen to my mind. My mind is telling me to move my posture and my body is feeling this discomfort, this pain. But the true self doesn't feel pain and the mind is not me, so I don't need to listen to it. I am in control of the mind. The mind is not in control of me. Because your mind can be your best friend or your worst enemy. Your mind is just a tool to live your life. It is not the boss. So you start to repeat this into your being. It's like a mantra that I'm repeating to myself. I'm not listening to my mind. I'm not going to listen to my mind. And I'm not moving my body because my body is feeling the pain. This is true, but I'm not feeling the pain. The true me is not feeling the pain. And when you start to repeat this and repeat this and start to relax the body, instead of causing tension, your body is reacting to the pain even at subtle levels that you can't tell. 
right? When you sit down sometimes and you think you're relaxed and then you learn to just relax the body even more, you start to see, well, there's subtle things in the body I can release that helps me relax even deeper. And the same thing with this pain is there's ways to relax the body even more subtly so that it's not creating tension that's reacting to this pain. And so as you're sitting there, or as I'm sitting there, I start to do this. I start to try to relax the body and not react to the the sensation and just observe it. Just observe the sensation. And then as my mind keeps telling me to move and move, I say, I'm not listening. I am not going to listen to my mind. And this is concentration. Because you are concentrating on controlling the mind. This is the difference between a strong and weak mind. We think of a strong mind that can think and think and think, but that's not necessarily a strong mind. A strong mind is one that can be focused on whatever you want for as long as you want. Now I'm sitting in this posture and I'm focusing my mind by just saying I'm not listening to you. And eventually the mind stops talking because it knows that you're not going to do anything. And then the body, that sensation that was so painful, starts to turn into just a tingling sensation. And that tingling sensation feels like nothing. And then I started to feel comfort in this relaxation, in this experience. And I was observing my mind. I was observing the body And it was the me that's behind this mind-body vehicle. It was the consciousness that I was experiencing separate from the body and from the mind. And it takes lots of concentration and practice to do that because how long can you concentrate on that? At this time, maybe I, I was able to concentrate like this for 20 minutes or 30 minutes. Then the mind starts to get weaker and, and you get tired and and it's more difficult to hold the posture. But the thing is also is when it starts to feel good is to not be attached to that feeling as well. And so when this this comfort came through the body and the sensation turned from a painful sensation to a joyful or even pleasurable sensation, you have to not react to that because that's not permanent. It'll go away and the pain will come back and the pain will go away and the pleasure will come back And this is life. This is how you need to learn to approach life, to break these habit patterns, and to live in the moment and be joyful. At this moment, I was able to fully experience that for a good amount of time. And through this understanding of what was going on, I'm able to repeat this. And this is the process of experiencing consciousness, experiencing who you are. Now, this isn't going to tell you exactly who you are, and it takes a little more than this, but this is the first deep step, is to experience consciousness beyond the mind and the body. And this is the purpose of yoga, of doing these postures, is to not listen to the body and the mind and experience what is really happening without reacting to it? And again, make sure you understand the difference between pain that is a warning of injury 
and pain that's just discomfort. Because if it's a warning of injury, drop the posture and deal with this. But if it's just discomfort, which most of this is, then you need to stay in it. And you need to learn not to react to it. And this is how you experience who is behind this mind-body vehicle. And the mind begins to stop. This reaction to the pain, to the discomfort, to the mind, is what is called false identification. You're identifying with something temporary. Anytime you identify with something temporary, it is a false identification. What is identification is reacting. This false identification is just a reaction. You're reacting to it because you are so identified with the pain or you're so identified with the thought that you have to react. This is false identification. And you can watch this not just in a yoga posture or the pain of, of sitting in, a, in, a, in meditation, but you can look at this in life. What are you reacting to? This is false identification. If it's temporary, it is not you. Anything that changes is not you. So try to focus on and find the thing that doesn't change. And then you start to get closer to answering this question of, who are you? And this is the most important question you can ask yourself. And you can learn how to experientially understand that you are not your mind or your body. And use this instrument, the mind and the body, to navigate this human experience. Learn to be equanimous with the sensations of the body. And you will learn to let go of your suffering. This is what's keeping you from really enjoying life, is this false identification. I'd like to tell you about Sing Flutes. These are flutes that are made by me. They're handcrafted Native American-style flutes designed for sound healing. The flutes are tuned to the frequency of 432 hertz, the harmonic intonation of nature. The fundamental note of each flute is in a key to vibrate a particular chakra. Whether you are playing for others or yourself, listening to 432 hertz music resonates inside the body. In fact, they did a medical study where they hooked people up to a brain and heart monitor and played different instruments to them. The Native American-style flute had the most impact in relaxing them. If you're a yoga teacher, it's a great instrument to incorporate into your classes. What I do is I have an app on my iPad that has the sounds of nature, and I'll put on the sounds of rain and play over this to the students at the end of the class. It's a very intuitive instrument to play. There's no musical knowledge necessary to get started. Each flute is unique since they're handmade. I put different artwork on them. I put mantras on them related to the chakras that they're tuned to. So go check them out at singflutes.com, S-I-N-G-H-F-L-U-T-E-S.com. Use the discount code, the story of me podcast and get 10% off. We're going to listen to a conversation that I had with Peter Walters who is a bhakti flow yoga teacher and also shares music through the practice of kirtan. 
I met Peter about five years ago in India, and I found him to be a very appealing yoga teacher in the way that he connects with his students. He is very authentic and present in his classes, and he's able to transmit wisdom in a very playful energy, which allows the students to be open and enjoy the practice that he's sharing with them. I highly recommend taking classes with him, whether it's in person or now he's giving classes online, because you will feel this playful energy which will open you up to really connect to his teachings. So now let's listen to the interesting conversation that we had. Thank you for joining me today, and welcome to the show, Peter. Hey, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to to see you. It's been a few years since we've met in the flesh. Yeah, I think uh, it was about five years, right? We met in India in uh, Dharamsala. That's right, yeah. I have a a vivid memory of that experience with you. And it was when you were trying to teach a one-on-one yoga class to this woman, and she wouldn't stop talking. Do you remember this? <laughs> Where was this? Was this at the guest house or? Yeah, it was that uh, that that Israeli oh, couple. The... Remember? I remember. Yeah. Wow. And that woman you were trying to teach her yoga, and she just couldn't stop talking. I thought, okay, this is quite funny. <laughs> I remember, man. India is amazing. You were very patient. Yeah. And how how long were you there for in that trip? Uh, it was six months. Yeah. Six months. Yeah. So a good, uh, a long time then, huh? Yeah, and I, I can't wait to come back. It's been too long. What I found interesting, just in that simple uh, memory I have, is is just how patient you were with her and how authentic you were. You didn't let it bother you, and you just kept teaching. And, and she talked more than someone you were having a conversation with would be talking. Yeah. And I mean, so I, I, that was really good. And then, you know, I've been following you on the social media, and I see your postings, and I get this really nice sense of authenticity. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I think this is good. You have a nice sense of humor. And I think most yoga teachers, you know, they, they get to a certain point and they lose their sense of humor because they feel they have to put up this this facade. Totally. And so this is what I found appealing. Yeah. I, you know, I noticed that a lot of newer yoga teachers, yoga students will come to their first teacher training and they're given sequences and philosophy and they're handed this sort of body of yogic information and it's not yet integrated into themselves so it's not wisdom it's it's like a textbook here's the stuff and new teachers i find often feel like they need to take on the persona of a yoga teacher of of try to be somebody that they are not naturally and i did this at first i tried to be like like my teacher and i tried to be this wise sage-like person. And, and that's not who I was. And it, it's only been more recently that I've been compelled and excited to be more myself, to not try to put on a, a costume of who I think I should be as a teacher, but just to be myself, to share my authentic fears and frustrations. And that is resonant with more people, I find. And, and the wisdom comes through that, the, the wisdom of being human and flawed and and challenged. So that's been big for me. And and I try to coach other newer teachers into be yourself. That's resonant with people. And and that's real. And you will become wise and quiet and steady when you when you just allow the process to unfold naturally. That just takes patience. 
Yeah, I, I think this comes through in in even your style of teaching. You you title your classes Bhakti Flow. Mm-hmm. Can you describe this for people? Sure. So this term was coined by my teacher, Rusty Wells, and it's the fusion of bhakti, which is devotional yoga, sort of yoga of the heart as an offering to God. And this is God as you see God. It doesn't need to be a Hindu God or a Christian God. It's the God of your own unique understanding, your devotion to something beyond me. And and it's the fusion of flow, which is the seamless quality of breath and movement. In, in our modern Western culture, flow is typically vinyasa. So it's a devotional celebratory sweaty vinyasa experience that I try to offer. And I want to make it celebratory because for me, when I, when I think of bhakti, kirtan and chanting and mantra is really inseparable from that devotional experience. So my classes are music filled. They're explosive. They're, uh, they're at the beginning and the end when we chant, they're, they're cries to God. And, and if that word, you know, doesn't resonate, it's, it's cries to your sweetheart, to your baby, to your child, to your partner. It's uh, it's calling out to to something big and great, and 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 that alone, that calling out, awakens spirit. I find so that's that's the fusion. I think some people get taken back by this word of God or or, or this idea, but really, it's just the connection with yourself. Yeah. It's just this connection with yourself, which then gets manifested in the way you connect with others. And I think this is a, a way to to look at this. Yeah, and and the question of like of what is God is is maybe a, a bigger su- subject we we don't need to broach today. But you know, when I look out for God, I'm I'm searching outwards. I keep on finding myself coming back that there's nothing that's not God. That I am God, not in an, an egoic sense, but everything is God. Everything is is that is manifest and unmanifest is is the beloved. And we we suffer when we separate, you know, when I think I'm different or better or, um, yeah. So I, I've, I've circled back to, to kind of finding God within myself. Yeah, I, I think this is where most people wind up going. You know, I have this image, whenever I think of it, I think of this image of the human body, for example. And we say, okay... Am I my arm or my foot or my leg? It's just different aspects of the physical being of me. And just the same way, each individual is this being that's connected to this universal energy, mm-hmm. which is this God energy or this consciousness, mm-hmm. this collective consciousness. And, you know, in Sikhism, they have this non-duality where God is the, the creation and the creator. Mm-hmm. And so the way I think of this is is if you have a piece of clay and you make a, a, a cup out of this clay, well, then we call it a cup, but really it's still just clay. Mm-hmm. And we all come from the same source, no matter what shape you're in or what being you are, it's the same. And that's kind of the way I look at it. Yeah, I like that a lot. No, thanks. What I liked about another aspect of your teaching is is the kirtan. You have a really nice voice. In fact, I saw a really nice video you have posted on on your, I think it's your your social media, mm. of you singing at college graduation. <laughs> do you know this video? Yeah, yeah, I do. <laughs> I, I think it's quite some time ago. But wow, what a voice! You know, oh. very. And even back then, you seemed very, very centered. You know, very when you were singing, it, it, you were just kind of in a in a 
a state of peace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I've I've always been been singing um, since I was a little kid. I remember I, I was I've been told this story, but I was in preschool, and we'd be sitting around at a little table for snack time, and everybody'd be just eating their little goldfish or something, and I'd be like, "Let's sing a song," and and I just love the energy that singing evokes. So I've always been singing, whether it was in chorus or gospel choir or a cappella group. And then I looked up one day as I was teaching to a, a big group and I was like, I'm doing the same thing as I was doing in preschool is singing with people because it, it awakens something really powerful and it can be spiritual. It can be godlike, or it is just, it awakens your being that might've otherwise been sleeping or distracted when you are expressing, when you open the Vishuddha, the, the, Vishuddha, the throat chakra, the ability to express the heart's longing and and what better way than to call out these names of god just they say repeating the names is enough you don't need to know even what they mean or who they are but just saying them over and over is so soothing and if if calling to god again doesn't resonate then at a minimum you're still in your mind you know it's it's a meditation it's it's a way just to to anchor your mind on one word or some series of words to, to still the fluctuations, to, you know, chitta vritti nirodaha, to still the fluctuation of the mind. It's, that's the yoga right there. So it's been hugely powerful for me. And, and I love to, to share it with people. Yeah, this is nod yoga, right? The yoga of the, the sound current. And mm -hmm. I think even for people who don't do yoga, you know, you listen to a song on, on the radio or whatever people listen to it on these days, and it, it does something to you. Right, if it's a sad song, you start to feel these memories, or depending on what you're going through in your life, you start to respond to the beat, the melody, the vocals, whatever it is. And mm -hmm. so, I think this is something that everyone can recognize because we all have it. We, you know, whether you're doing yoga or not, you realize the power of sound, and uh, especially living in India for a while, the 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 power of silence is. Mm -hmm. is you start to really enjoy this. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, it's it's very powerful. I wish I could sing uh, like you can, but... Uh, yeah. <laughs> you can. It's, yeah, I can chant, but uh, yeah, it was really nice to see you sing in that video. Oh. That was uh, at your graduation, right? Or that something was like 2000, this. 2011. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, and at that point, what were you intending on doing? What was your intention? Was it to, were you doing yoga at that point? You know, I found yoga several years before that and kind of just brushed through it. It, it didn't really grab me. Um, and I was, I was, my, I had intentions of, of making lots of money and buying things and buying houses and, and cars and sort of being a, a person of the world and following the, the standard American diet of, of get rich, accumulate lots of money, and then pass it on to your future kids or just buy, buy things you don't need. And then when I found yoga and maybe like really found it when it really rooted in me in 2000 and uh, maybe 12, I'd say uh, soon after I, I moved out to California uh, it, it kind of started blossoming very quickly and the, the material materialistic consumerist uh, world was losing its appeal pretty rapidly and my ambitions of making it as a somebody, making it as someone, becoming a name, becoming famous, becoming, you know, all those things that people often want started fading away. 
and just getting closer to my true essence became more important and figure and just really question who am I beyond this ego, beyond the the story of Peter, beyond the narrative I tell myself about myself, what's beneath that? You know, um, the ultimate question of many spiritual teachings is who am I? And that simple three words can give you enough stimulation for years of inquiry. So that's been that's been good. But to answer the question directly, uh, I was I was working in marketing and sales and business development. My dad had a food company that was doing good. It was um, it was about helping feed hungry children through the sale of, of of our snack products. So that was my initial job, I would say, out of out of college. Is that what you study business in school, marketing, or no? I, I studied philosophy, which I guess should have been a red flag that I was not supposed to be doing uh, businessy type work, but um, yeah, philosophy. Yeah, I, I study philosophy and some other things. I like uh, really like this, but then I, I started to get it from philosophy. I started to transition into psychology. Mm-hmm. That was my thing. Is I started out with uh, this, and I said okay. And I started to question now, what about the mind and what about, and so that's how I got into that. Totally. And, and philosophy on its own is just like, it, it's great, but it's, uh, what would we say? Mental masturbation. It, it, it like, yeah. it's sort of like playing with words and logic. I mean, I loved it cause it was mathematics for language. Um, but, but you missed the whole theory of mind. You said, you know, like you get all these really heady ideas of, of like following logical trains to its end of like what is art or or something but you but you miss like okay i i'm also operating from this this box that is my brain um and it it just sort of philosophy i felt i felt like something was missing at least in my study of western philosophy yeah I, i think you're right the one real thing that i liked about it is it made you really learn how to think Mm-hmm. about argument or about a situation, how to analyze it and how to, you know, especially after taking logic courses and, and really thinking about the argument of what you're doing. And, and it's interesting because many people separate this science and logic from spirituality, but it's really not separate. And mm-hmm. I found that they, they help each other. They, they go together. Mm-hmm. And in the same way you can use your logic in, in different topics, you can also use it in spirituality to try to figure out the habit patterns, right? Is you mm-hmm. need to be logical. The cause and effect is logic. So what I wanted to get to is the challenges to get to this point. So we know where you came from and what you were thinking about and and the idea, but it's not as easy as it sounds, no matter what you're doing, if you're going into business or, or to be a yoga teacher or whatever it is, what were the challenges that you experienced changing from going from this corporate world to the world of yoga? Mm. Uh, great question. I mean, I guess I think initially it was it was a putting down of ambition, which was hard and not natural, but I felt compelled. I felt pulled towards the yoga. I I felt pulled towards spiritual and personal inquiry in a way that sitting at a desk, playing on a computer, pushing around numbers on spreadsheets wasn't satisfying. It, It paled in comparison to the, the connection I felt 
by chanting with people and learning Dharma and, and sitting with teachers who had even a moment of self-realization. But the challenges that existed initially are still admittedly the challenges that exist for me today. Uh, longing and aversion, you know, the, the sort of the root of everybody's suffering still come up. The benefit of having a decade or so of practice under my belt is that I catch more quickly and I'm able to notice, oh my gosh, I'm reaching for this thing again. How adorable of, of me, you know, instead of getting caught in the drama and being frustrated by it, I'm like, okay, here I am wanting that thing again. What will I do? Can I step back and can I not react to that, to the sense uh, perception or, or to the craving, for example? And I still get seduced by it. I still get pulled into the, the, the desire for the food, the stimulation, the thing you know, whatever the thing is for you. And, and I've definitely struggled with tobacco and cannabis and um, different intoxicants that, that really didn't serve me. Thank God for yoga for giving us a tool set. Uh, and I, I think of it as a tool set to remind me of what I forgot to remember, of what I know deeply, is that in the present moment, I'm okay. I don't need anything else. I don't need to fill fill up myself, fill up my cup with drug, alcohol, sex, uh, TV, uh, whatever the thing is, you know, I, I have my breath and I have this beautiful, perfect present moment just waiting for my attention and waiting for my inquiry. And I still get derailed all the time, but I know that I have the practice. I know it's just kind of waiting there. It's like a room that's always in your house and you know it's there and the room has everything you need to feel totally at peace, totally calm, totally home. You know, you spend your life dancing between, oh yeah, I have that room over there. I can go back there anytime. Yeah. And my practice is just coming back into the room, coming back into awareness, coming back into realization. I think it's interesting. People have this perspective of yoga teachers, and I've seen it, especially being here in India for so long, because a lot of people come to sit at the feet of a master or whatever it is. And even my own opinion up until not so long ago is you start to see, wow, they're evolved. There's this perfection that they don't get depressed. They don't get sad. And, you know, I remember living in an ashram in Berlin, and the the head teacher there was an older man and and had been doing yoga for, I don't know, four decades or a long time. And in certain aspects, he was so well evolved. In other aspects, he was so childish, almost to the (laughs) point where you're like, are you serious? You know? And and then you start Uh to realize one thing I realized from this is self-realization is not a linear process. You know, it, it, it's definitely not a linear process. And this is, I, I saw this firsthand in, in this experience. And then the other thing you realize being a yoga teacher, that you do go through problems in your life. You do say, okay, I still have this attachment. I see it, or I still have this this reaction to something that's happened to me before. And, or I'm going through a period of my life and I, I feel sad or I feel depressed. And the one thing that I, I've noticed in, in my years of doing yoga, the difference is from now to in the past, is 
and I tell this to the students, is that even yoga teachers get depressed, but for them, they can get out of it very quickly because they can recognize what it is. And it's just a attachment to a thought. And this thought is mm-hmm. creating this feeling. And then it just keeps perpetuating for most people. Mm-hmm. But when you're able to to recognize, okay, I'm not my thoughts and I'm not my body, I'm not my emotions, why am I reacting to them? And why am I participating in this? And instead of trying then to escape it, is just to relax into it and just say, okay, let me just observe mm-hmm. what is happening and why I'm reacting this way instead of being part of it and saying, I have to react even more because this is attachment. What is attachment totally. but this reaction to it? And I think this mm-hmm. is what yoga gives you is it gives you these tools to recognize that, okay, I see what's happening. My life is maybe not going as ideally as I would like. Mm-hmm. But why why do I have to react this way? Why do I have to treat myself this way and then treat other people this way? And so you're able to kind of change that thinking a lot faster because you're not so attached to it. Oh, it's so true. And you know, there's and there's multiple levels to have that experience. On one hand, it's uh it's a psychological experience to like look at your programming from early childhood, from the way your parents treated you, from the way your first heartbreak brought you to where you are now and how those inform your present moment. So there's that lens. And then there's a spiritual lens that can help you pull out and be like, oh my God, everything's everything's God. The little drama that's in front of me is so minuscule. Like, let it out, exhale it, you know? And 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 the lens through which we can look through things is is powerful. Yeah, and to recognize that we're the ones who are participating and keeping us tied to this. What I've experienced is that the more you resist what's happening, the more it continues because your resistance is causing what you don't want to happen to happen. Exactly. This is the the little wisdom you start to get after decades of yoga is, is to just say, okay, I see what I'm doing and I'm resisting this. Just accept it. It's okay. Just accept yeah, it. Yeah. And sometimes so that's powerful. hard because your ego gets in the way. Your ego says, no, don't accept. You shouldn't be dealing with this. <laughs> this shouldn't be happening to you. Yeah. It, it's funny though, because I think when people start out doing yoga, they think, okay, I'm going to get to a certain point and this won't happen to me anymore. I won't get into these <laughs> habit patterns. And yeah, yeah, maybe they, they, they don't affect you as much, but the, the real strength is that you recognize what's happening and you're able mm-hmm. to to let go of it much quicker and able mm-hmm. to actually even grow from it and, and, and see something that you didn't see because of it. So true. And so you, you talked about intoxicants and, mm-hmm. and you know, you mentioned cannabis, alcohol, but even thoughts can be intoxicant, right? When we do vipassana, we think about the thoughts we create to change the way we feel and all this. What did you recognize when you were going through these periods like this that why were you why did you feel that you were kind of stuck in these these patterns or or what they were trying to tell you? It's a good question. I, I guess I haven't thought about that in that way. It it was I think I think all addiction comes down to a, a, a discomfort with the present moment. You know, I need I need to I need to I need to add something to feel more okay. And tobacco can do that. It doesn't pull you out of presence. It doesn't make you drunk or high per se, but it gives you an outlet to release something uh, that was otherwise stressing your mind or your body. 
cannabis is, you know, it can be a depressant or a dissociative, but it was, it was a way for me to, to release anxiety or to release fear and to, uh, finally relax. Alcohol is a way for people to release inhibition and, and kind of move, get out of their own way and say yes to the moment in some ways. So this isn't involving psychedelics, which I think are a different category of experience. What I've experienced in my own dealing with these types of things, and, and, and even behaviors like eating or, or sleeping or whatever it is, it's a way to manage the emotion, right? It's the way to manage how you feel. And for me, when I start to look at this, I start to recognize, okay, it, it, it's, you know, there's no value in anything, right? This, this, this idea of emptiness, that nothing has value. It's the relationship you have with it. And mm-hmm. if you're doing something because it's taking you away from something else, well, this is a, a negative relationship. And I found mm-hmm. with myself, and in, in even patterns of thinking, you start to think a certain way to, to take you away from how you are in this moment. And when you start to look at this, you start to see even the food you eat. Okay, I'm eating unhealthy. What is going on today? Why, why do I want to change the way I'm feeling? And this is mm-hmm. what I tell people. If you want to quit some habit that you have, don't look at it as discipline. Don't look at it as you have this bad habit. Look at it as this lack of self-love, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're harming yourself and you're doing it because right. you're not satisfied with the way you feel. Because once you, I started to feel better in my own life, it was very difficult to pick up any intoxicant because I said, I feel too good. Why do I want to change the way I feel? And this is the way to work at it is not to look at it as I need discipline to kick this addiction, but I need to... I need to understand why I'm not happy with the way I feel. Why do I want to change the way I'm thinking? Why do I want to change my consciousness? What am I not happy with? Mm-hmm. So this is this is kind of how I look at everything. I can see my behavior by how I'm treating myself in a healthy way or unhealthy or even just a way to get myself out of how I'm feeling. Right? Mm-hmm. It's just, it's just not being in the moment. It's funny, I've uh, recently taken up trail running, so kind of running longer distances through the woods. And, and yet when I get home, um, I have these like two, two things that act as my like rewards. And one is like laying on the couch and watching a show or a movie, and which feels so luxurious and just like a gift. And then the other is like sweets. It's like it's cookies or ice cream. And I'm like, well, if I run my, if I run, I get to, I get to indulge in my dessert in my, you know, and, and then like every time I do it, I like right after I feel shame. I'm like, why did I do that? I just did this really good thing for myself. And I had to kind of like negate it by giving myself this gift. And I know that if I just rewire that pleasure system and say like, no, why don't you eat like an apple after you run or something or, or do something that, that may elicit something good, but is healthy. I can practice self-love in the process of already having done something good. I can keep that going. But I totally feel it. And I still, I still struggle with that. And, and I think for a lot of us, sugar is, is a, an ever-present prime opportunity to, uh, to, to self-investigate. Oh, definitely. And I, I think you can even look from day to day. What days do I want desire this more than other days? What, what am I feeling? What am I experiencing? Even at a subtle level where yeah. you're not aware of it. 
You know, I remember when I first started doing yoga, I, I would go just on Fridays after work. And Friday night after work, I would go to the class and I would feel so good after the class. I wouldn't go out all weekend. I would just say, I don't want to go out to the bars and the clubs. I, I feel too good. I don't yeah. want to ruin this feeling. And that's how I got into it just from that one day a week and started to recognize that I feel so good. I don't want to change the way I feel. Totally. You do a lot of retreats, and I, I think uh, you do retreats in all over the world. And to get people to go to these retreats, they must have some connection to you, right? Because they're traveling mm -hmm. far distances. It's not the, the cheapest thing in the world to, to go down to the corner and do a yoga class. So yeah. how, are, how are you cultivating this relationship that you're able to connect to these students in this way? I think I try to give people um, a space to to fall in love with the present moment. Maybe that sounds really simple, but I don't know about you, but I spent a lot of my life doing everything I could to be elsewhere. I, I either spent a lot of mental energy replaying events of my past that were either challenging or delightful, or I was fantasizing into the future about some future me who was skinny, handsome, strong, wealthy, had the most beautiful partner in the world, had everything I needed. You know, it was this fantasy into the future. So everything was about not being in the present. And I think what I hope to teach, and I put that in quotes because I think it's it doesn't really feel quite like teaching, is present moment awareness. And that everything that you need and want is really in this moment. And you can feel totally okay. You can feel, in fact, bliss when you give yourself permission to be right here and right now. I try to foster that environment in a vinyasa yoga class, in a bhakti flow class. It's a sense of okayness, at a minimum okayness, with the now. And in the space of a class, somebody might laugh and cry and feel deep connection with themselves. They might feel forgiveness for somebody who may have wronged them. They might feel a deeper love than they knew for uh, a partner or a child or a parent or a lover. They might feel acceptance for their whole present reality, which they might have otherwise fought tooth and nail. God, I just wish once I have this and I wish it were like this. And just if they get a moment of acceptance, wow, what a gift to give somebody that, to give them the ability to welcome in what is. So I think people like to retreat with me because I can I can sometimes offer them this feeling in the space of an hour-long class, now even just over the internet, over Zoom, to help them feel more okay, to feel lightness. The, you know, Milan Kundra writes of the infinite infinite lightness, unbearable lightness of being. But just just to to feel more okay. You know, I don't I, my teachings are not profound. They're they're not you're not gonna come out of it and be like, oh my God. Oh, it just, it just an okayness. And I think that's for a lot of us, that's plenty, you know, that's, that's enough just to feel a bit more okay. What I've experienced, the best teachers do the least amount of talking, right? Because, it, yeah. you know, they, they say, how do you know if someone is self-realized? And they say, well, sit next to them and see how you feel. And not ask them a cool. question, not let them prove something to you, but 
what feeling do you get next to this person? And even in my own teachings, uh, I remember when I first started teaching workshops, I'd have so many notes and make sure I cover this word and this word and this phrase and say this. And now I have I have no notes or maybe a couple notes, and mm. I, I try to just be present and even not stop talking and just be just sit there for a moment, right? Just yeah. sit in silence. And, and I think this is very effective, and this is what I was getting at because I get this from you is is that it's your presence. You know, this is the mm. one thing that I find really appealing in your teaching is this presence of being just there. And it comes through, mm-hmm. I, I said, in your sense of humor and, and, and just your lightness of, of the way you connect to the students. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I, I once saw a, uh, a, an online talk of um, uh, Eckhart Tolle, and he had this, he, it was a meditation or it was a Dharma talk, and he had this room full of hundreds of people. And I loved it. He just, he kind of came up on stage and he just sat on his chair and he just, he just looked around just very slowly. And he just sat there and then this is like five minutes. That's a long time for silence to begin. And then just a little smile kind of creeped on his face and then <laughs> a little chuckle. And he went back into silence and just kind of looked around. And that was one of the most profound teachings I had ever received. And he didn't say a word. And then you look at people like beings like Neem Kroli Baba Maharaji and his teaching wasn't powerful because he said anything he didn't really give dharma talks from what i understand it was his way of being and you know ram das and bhagavan das and krishna das were all students of his and they said he seemed like this doorway towards god this empty there's emptiness it wasn't that he was full of wisdom and information and stuff it was just that what was so powerful is that there was nobody there you know, there was there was some there was somebody, I guess, interacting, but very close beneath that, there was the spaciousness where you could look into his eyes and and see see the infinite. And I love that. That was always so resonant. And and with teachers that I've really connected with, sure, there's a personality. There's somebody driving the ship, but they make space for you to see through that and to see deeply. So, right. yeah, that's that's the teaching that's resonated most with me. And I, I remember I'd, I'd, I'd led a, a workshop once in Austria and I was like, OK, this is a new student group. They don't know what I do or how I do it. I got to prepare. I got to like study bhakti. I got to look at all the different kinds of bhakti. And I, and I took notes. I did this for hours, like studying and trying to like learn all the stuff that I never actually learned. I, I intellectualized bhakti, which is ridiculous. Um, I, I made it a subject and I had pages and pages of notes. And there I am with my iPad and I'm, and I'm teaching and, and trying to like reference things. And, and it just, and people are just looking at me like I'm crazy. I'm like, what am I doing? It felt so off. And it was the most awkward, horrible workshop I ever taught in my life. And all of my teachings are without notes, without plan. You know, if, if I'm graced with, with a teaching, it comes through me like, a, like a channel, like a, like a breath. Uh, there's no plan. Whenever I try to create a sequence, even it's, it's garbage, but when I just make space for what arrives, it's perfect. This is the experience I have when I teach as well. I mean, I think this is a mistake of all beginning teachers is, oh, so many notes, make sure you have all that, you know the words and all this. But then I would get there after a while and just have faith in, okay, I can connect to myself and to the students. Yeah. And I just let what comes out. And after a while, I'd say, oh, I didn't even look at my notes. I forgot I had my notes. <laughs> 
And yeah. now teaching classes online and me doing this podcast, it's a little different because this is the thing that I am focused on is, you know, when I'm teaching, I'm looking at the students, I'm feeling their energy, and I'm responding to it in my teaching. I'm able to mm-hmm. really kind of take them on that journey. And this is something I want to try to do through this podcast in some way, and I'm trying to make it interactive. How are you dealing with this, giving classes online? Yeah, I mean, I, I try to get people to show their videos when I'm doing Zoom classes, which helps mm-hmm. just to see people. And it's so cool to see people in their home environments, in their living rooms, outside, with their partners, with the dog and the cat running around and and try to connect to that energy. Sometimes I'll just start class and be like, show me your thumbs. How are you feeling? And that's a nice kind of barometer. Like, what's the energy of this collective 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 people? What's the energy? Are people smiling? Are they low? And and I realized that I can also help craft that energy. What kind of, do I play music at the beginning? How how am I showing up? Am I showing up very solemn and quiet and okay, everybody, we're going to begin in warrior one. And that's great, mm-hmm. you know, if that's your energy. But I start like, okay, it's, it's going to be a party. We're going to have a great experience. You can steer the group energy like you could in, in an in-person experience. You can can craft that bob, right? The vibe. And, and that's up to you as a facilitator definitely harder it's definitely harder mm. than in person to, to to cultivate that energy but i'm i'm also as i'm practicing with them i'm getting downloads of of what's the next pose and what's what am i going to say next um what's cool is when i'm practicing i'm i'm actually practicing myself and when i say where's your drishti where's your gaze i'm i notice i caught myself drifting off and i say be here now because my mind drifted off to something else strengthen your legs because my legs for that moment were weak so it's almost easier because i'm in it with them i'm in that Mm -hmm. practice so it's been harder and easier at the same time different ways yeah i think it's a a new type of challenge and and it's interesting especially maybe a little more challenging for the older people because we've not new for us but it's we we don't connect the same way that people who grew up on this technology connect through it where for us, I mm-hmm. think we're, we're used to being in person and to connecting people on a physical level. And then to do yeah. it this way, I, it, it's, you know, in, in the beginning of putting this, this project together and doing this, I start to say, okay, maybe this won't be as fun. But now I'm starting to find, okay, this is a different type of challenge. How do I go about putting this together where I'm connecting with the people and they're able to connect with me and not be in the same place? And I, I think yeah. it, yeah, like you said, it, it's it's not the same, but there's a capacity to still connect to the students or to connect to the people and to elevate not just them but you as well. Yeah, and there's and there's something even more rich in that, like your your focus, like you have a computer there or your headphones on, and the the teacher or the student is right in your ears and right in your gaze, so like when you're in a studio or, you know, out, out by the, by the, the Ganges, you know, like with like teaching something, it's, it's intense. There's a lot of stimulation. There's a lot to look at. There's a lot to smell, especially in a new place. In a yoga studio, there's people around you. There's uh, all sorts of smells and you're hot. And, but when you're in this type of experience, you can bring, in a way you can actually bring more presence, I find sometimes. So it's been, it's been powerful for me. 
maybe even more intimate, you're in their houses, right? You're saying you're seeing yeah. this. Maybe for them, it, they feel this intimacy. Okay, they know where my li- I live. They know my, my environment. And uh, yeah. so that's interesting. Yeah, I taught it. I taught an outdoor class recently. And uh, we had like these wireless headphones on and I had a mic so I could play music. So everybody could hear me. We we're on like uh, in a field. Oh, it was so awkward. I, I forgot what it was like to, to be with people in real life. Mm. It's been over... 120 days or something since that actually taught in person that it felt yeah. so unnatural like see, looking people in the eye in person um but it was rich and i'm glad i nice. got to do it what inspires you at this point in your journey because you've been teaching for a while you you give these nice retreats all over right? in europe what places do you um, teach here your yeah i've your done shirts. hawaii several times i've done bali I've done Mexico. Uh, I do a lot in Northern California. I've, I've done a couple. I've done one in Greece. We sailed on boats in Greece. <clears throat> and I'm excited to do other places. I want to do Thailand. I'd like to eventually do India. And hopefully we can connect. We could partner on something. I want to do Costa Rica. There's so many places that are high on my list that would be beautiful to explore and share with other people. Um. But what's guiding me? What's what's inspiring me right now? I think just the privilege of shared self-investigation and being able to, to be the guide of some sort in that journey of knowing yourself better, for me, feels really satisfying. And really, it, it feels like one of the, the highest expressions of my life that I can offer is that we get to venture down this road of life together not necessarily in playful banter or conversation, but just in deep personal excavation. You know, what it, what's stuck in my body and the body then informs the thoughts and the thoughts inform whatever sense of spirit or wonder somebody has. So just to, to share this, this adventure with people, to feel less alone in our, in our road from birth to death feels really nice. And that anyone will come along with me, that that one person shows up in a yoga class, I'm like, oh, uh, somebody's in this with me today. You know, I'm not alone. And that feels really good. So I, I'd say that's that's really resonant, it's just, it's just sharing sharing the adventure with others. So I'd like to end this interview with a question. What does success mean to you? I think this is something that at different points in our life, I know myself, I worked in the corporate world and you say, okay, if I get this degree and I get this job and I get this promotion, I get this. But now I, I think for many people, especially in the situation we're in, what does success mean to you? How do you mm. define it for yourself? I think I can answer that question in, in two ways. And one is on like on a personal level of like me, like what is what does success look like for me? And then what does success look like in my teaching? And for me, that's more moments of complete awareness, immersion in the, the cosmic soup that is life when I don't feel separate, when I feel like there's no, when there's no I, when there's a moment of just like, oh my God, this, this thing and that thing, and it's, it's all one thing. When I can get out of my head, when I get out of thought patterns, when I just immerse myself fully in presence that's success and that can happen 
once a day or twice a day or five times a day. Uh, or you take psychedelics and you're in it for several hours and you're like, mm. you, you feel intimately connected to life, life as this flowing river of sorts. So success for me is longer durations of feeling complete presence. And success as a teacher is, is simple. It's just helping people feel, feel better. And I guess the stretch, the stretch of that is to help people wake up, to have moments of awakening, whether it's just one breath of that feeling of I'm not separate, I'm not different from anybody else or anything else. And if I can be the facilitator of that, I'm not the doer, but the facilitator of helping somebody see that I'm not separate, then I think I've done my work and that's, and that's plenty. And, and in some ways, I'm happy when I see there'll be a student who has been with me for some time and then they, they're gone. I think of that as a success, that they've found their next teacher or their next teaching, um, that, they've, that they've moved beyond what I have to offer, which of course is limited, you know, and I'm not the end. And I trust that, that people will, will find their way past me and, and reach their next teaching. So that's, that's my goal, I guess, is to, is to be obsolete, that people reach clarity and comfort and contentment in their being, that they don't need me in physical form to guide them. Great. That sounds really nice. Yeah, it's like being the mirror for, for the students, right? Yeah. All right. So we can direct people to your website, peteryoga.com. And the That's social it. media is Peter Walters Yoga in Instagram and Facebook. And you're giving yep. online classes so people can sign up no matter where they are. This is one good thing. You, you can uh, connect with students all over the world. So connect with him and take one of his classes I think you'll really enjoy his presence, even even online. And uh, like I said, I, I really liked the way you teach, and and I think your authentic nature really comes through really well in your teaching. And the students will get something out of that. So I recommend people to go to his website and connect to him, and sign up for his classes. And when we're able to do retreats again, maybe take one of the retreats. Uh, so thank you for joining me today, and, and uh, we'll do it again. Maybe when you have a retreat, you can come on and we'll talk about this. Thank you, Peter. I'd love that. Thank you so much, brother. Good seeing you. Uh, it's great to see you. Thank you for joining me today. Before we leave, I want to give you the homework for this episode, and it is to try to use what I talked about to experience the true you, the consciousness behind who you are. So if you're doing yoga, when you're doing a yoga posture in your class or at home or wherever you're doing yoga, is to hold that posture. And when it becomes painful or difficult and the mind tells you to release it, tell yourself, I'm not listening to the mind. And repeat that mantra to yourself until that position becomes easier. Right is to let go of the tension of the body. Try to relax the body. Try not to react even in subtle ways to the discomfort. And you can do this also sitting in meditation. Try to sit without moving. Not even a fraction of a, a millimeter. Do not move. And see if you can maintain that posture. When the mind tells you to move, don't move. And just observe the pain. Don't react to it mentally or physically. Try not to react to it. And also incorporate this in your life. When something is causing you suffering, whether it's the situation that you're in or a relationship, 
try to just observe and not react and say, I'm not going to react. I'm just going to be present and try to physically and mentally be at peace. So this is your homework. Please go to the Facebook group and share your experience with this homework. You can find a link to the Facebook group and also submit your questions at thestoryofmepodcast.com. Also, please subscribe and rate and review the podcast. It really helps get the word out and share it with a friend. This is how we can build this community. It helps out a lot. From the podcast that awakens your inner power through awareness and understanding, allow love to be the current that carries your words and actions. (laughs) 